Hello, it's the life of Brian, dot, 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 Mannix, that is... The podcast. And the star of the show is me, but, you know, we, we give Brian the odd little mention. <laughs> Hello, Brian Mannix, rock star. How are you? <coughs> well, I, <coughs> I was coughing straight up, uh, Kev. Um, I'm good. I've, um, you know, I'm sitting in my pretty much empty house. Um, I've got one chair. I've got my bar fridge. I've got a blow-up bed. Um, yeah, it's nearly all packed up, nearly time to move on. I've got no TVs. Uh, but you've got uh, – well, how are you keeping in touch with the world? What are you doing? Are you, you, you still got your social well, media kind of contact thing going on there? Well, I've been at my brother's, but um, tonight because we had to do stuff, I thought, well, I'll just stay here and then I'll get rid of the rest of my stuff and, um, you know, and then start thinking about moving to Queensland. But, did, um, did you find stuff that you'd forgotten about? I mean, because you've been in that house for oh. 30 plus years or something, haven't you? I've been in here since 94, but I've been collecting stuff. You know, I've been married to 36 or something, so there's 36 years worth of shit. But yeah, you find heaps of stuff that. Um, did you, you find any good about. stuff? Um, well, yeah, we did. Um, things like, um, you know, uh, Something that my kids did when they were, you know, my son's description of Airport West, his essay, I thought that was just hilarious. <laughs> and because, um, you know, he's talking about Airport West and tr- try the traditional Italian food at <laughs> such and such pizza. The the Wangs serve up great pizza and, you know, <laughs> shit like that. It was kind of hanging shit on the area, but um, it was really funny. Um, go to village cinemas. Marvel at Pat, the oldest, the oldest attendant in the world. <laughs> uh, and it was very funny. And yeah, just some of the kids' drawings and stuff I thought were great. And um, yeah, there was a few other things I just can't recall them at the moment. You but, get lost uh, yeah. when you when you start doing because we had the house recarpeted recently, so we almost did a, a move at, uh, like you've done. You had to pack everything up and get out of the house so they put carpet down. And and uh, I found you know. Photo albums and uh, and uh, not scrapbooks as such, but just boxes with stuff in it. And I'm going, oh, okay. Very unproductive, mind you, because you spend 25 minutes looking through that when you're supposed to be hauling stuff out into the garage or whatever, and just go, oh, yeah. look, there's a there's a thing from my Fox days, and there's a thing from my three XY days, and there's and you go, God. Oh, the X Men memorabilia. Like I've got a T-shirt for every tour we ever did, so that's going to storage, but. But um, the photos I've deliberately tried not to look at um, because it's, you know, what are you looking in the rear vision mirror for when you're going forward? And um, was a little bit, uh, well, you know, there's a, a picture of me and my wife at our wedding and then there's a family photo and I see that they've both been left. So clearly, you know, 36 years count for nothing. But anyway, mm. there you yeah. go. That's life, you know. That's what times happens. Times are tough sometimes. Yeah. Now, listen, we've got a good show coming up. We've got Jack Jones. Good to have. Jack Jones. Jack Jones. He's good. He's very good, and he's a good fellow. He's a great singer. Um, he's a nice bloke. Now we had to, you know, we had to sort of find him, and uh, fortunately, fortunately, not not realestate.com, but close to it, we actually did track him down. Here's a little insight into where where we found him. Do you still live in the the, the old church that you bought of Joe Dolce? <laughs> Yeah, I'm sitting in it right now. Oh, beautiful. 
Yeah, it's funny. Um, oh, look, I, I won't. I, I, won't I, was, I, had, I had a septic tank issue, and um, and I think you know, Joe, if you're listening, I think you probably knew about it. But anyway, <laughs> I, I had a, I had a mate over here, and we were dealing with it, and I said, Jesus Christ, I'm up to my elbows and Joe Dalton, and I'll tell you what, we were. <laughs> but, um, it was a, it was horrific. Yeah. But anyway, you know what? I do I do live in this in this little church, and it's beautiful. It's a, it's probably been the one thing that's really um, it it definitely kept me sane. Right, so up to your elbows and Joe Dolce. That's that's probably not a good place to be. So we got Jack. So he's locked in, and then after Jack, uh, we go back. Uh, and I know you're very good mates with this bloke as well. Is Billy oh, Miller? He's a superstar. He's a he's, great fella. He's a great songwriter. He's a great singer. Um, he's a big Beatle fan. But I really, really like his guitar playing because. Unlike a lot of guitarists, he doesn't have all the effects and all that stuff. He just plays. And if he makes a mistake, you're going to hear it. Whereas, you know, if you've got a distortion pedal on, you can sort of get away with, you know, a little bit of inaccuracy. But he just plays really boldly, gets his great guitar sound and never makes a mistake. No, he's really, and he's got a really great style of guitar playing and, um, you know, written some great songs, and uh, which we, we talk about. Yes, we do. And we talk about uh, some high escapades with Molly Meldrum that you wouldn't have heard about before and uh, uh, some other little bits and pieces that you'll hear with uh, with Billy. So looking forward to that as well. All, of course, thanks to our very good friends at oh, Mercots. one three hundred triple five five seven six. See, it's indelibly in, entrenched in Brian's mind now. He just he just knows it. He just knows mercots.edu.au. He knows what they do, how they can help you things that they've done in the past because they no. taught him in 1985 to drive a car and here he is oh. living proof that it works. And, you know, uh, even today when I'm playing, you know, PlayStation, I know where my racing lines are. I know, mm. you know, when to brake. I know when to accelerate out of the corner and, oh, yeah, even though I'm not in a racing car, what I learned is still relevant. Absolutely. So even if you, you, your kids are okay drivers, maybe send them down anyway so they'll get better at PlayStation. <laughs> yeah, there is that. No, if we can just get- you, want to get, you get the V8 supercars out and, you know, what Mercot's taught me, I go pretty good. Is that right? That's right. So you'll be a safer driver and a better driver, but you'll also be better at driving games on PlayStation and Xbox, which is one of the elements we haven't focused on before, Kev. No, we haven't. We haven't. We haven't factored that into uh, into what they what they can bring to the table. Uh, how'd you go with your talks with Mark Lane at Mercotts about him starting up a uh, a boat driving school? No good. Uh, no, no, and um, still no word on the tank. No, um, no. The tank driving. No, no word back. They're, they're tanks, but no it. tanks. Well, maybe that's the case, but um, yeah, I, I put them onto a joint where they can get an old centurion, but um, I don't know if they're that. I don't know if Mark's that interested, but uh, um, oh, anyway, we'll wait and see. One three hundred five 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 seven six. That's their number. Mercots.edu.au. Let's get stuck into our first guest. Uh, we tracked him down to the the, the church that used to belong to Joe Dolce. That's where we find the wonderful Jack Jones. All right. How many gigs do you think you've had cancelled? <laughs> God. We're gonna have we're gonna go straight there, are we? Uh, I'd say a career's worth. <laughs> In the last two years it's just been um it's just been ridiculous. You haven't written a song about COVID, have you? <laughs> I haven't written one. Um no. look, Reggie, my mate Reggie and I, during the first lockdown we wrote 
about 35 songs. And we basically made a pact to to sort of have each other's back and uh, for lack of, well, this is the, this was the term. We weren't going to leave any skid marks on the internet. That was the that, that was basically what we decided to do. Now I don't know if that's a good idea or not. I know that there's a lot of people out there that, that are doing it pretty tough at the moment. I, I know I have for the last couple of years, mate. It's been absolutely dreadful. It's been really really tough. However, yeah, you know we're we're musicians and we're pretty resilient. <laughs> we're, we're no stranger to disappointment, that's for sure, or, or things not going our way. So, so look, I, I still remain quite positive throughout all this, to be honest with you. But, yeah, look, it's been a very interesting time. <laughs> and, Jack, have you, the, the songs you wrote, when do you wrote those 35 songs, and you've obviously written others uh, in the second year of uh, COVID, do you to go to a second year. <laughs> Has there been yeah. – are they different to the stuff you would normally write? Were they coloured by what was going on around you? Um, look, I tend to write, I mean, this may sound boring, but I tend to write about the same things, which are usually just relationship-based stuff. Not like boy meets girl, you know, girl leaves boy, boy, you know, is heartbroken, boy gets girl again. Not not necessarily that. You write about what you know, right? So that but that may be other, other people's experiences too. I'm happy to put myself in someone else's shoes. However, I'd be lying if I said that there wasn't uh, in some of the songs, uh, I guess uh, some sort of, as a matter of fact, a song that we're just about to put out called Destiny Awaits is very much, you know, just about the sort of gatekeepers of the world. And um, and I guess that's maybe not a traditional topic. Although, I mean, what hasn't been written about, right? I mean, it's, I, I didn't, I definitely didn't spend my time sitting around wallowing and going, oh, I'm stomping my feet and having a tantrum and I don't like what's going on. I'm going to write songs about it. It was more. Um, <laughs> it was more about just uh, just the kind of day to day emotional roller coaster that we all we all find ourselves, you know, going through. Yeah, I know what you mean when you say you, you write about what you know. Um, my new song, Cock, is um, pretty. <laughs> Um. Wow! Well, who could make you wrong for doing that, mate? <laughs> <laughs> Brian takes a very hands-on approach to his songwriting, uh, Jack. Oh, oh, very good. Here, here I was being all serious. Jesus Christ! <laughs> hey, you forgot oh where you God. were for a moment, Jack, didn't you? <laughs> where am I? <laughs> hey, did you uh, did you use the lockdown to take up the ukulele again? <laughs> Look, <I'm, laughs> you have a good memory, haven't you? No, I, I do play a little bit of uke from time to time, terribly. So, no, I have my, my skill set with the ukulele hasn't improved at all since lockdown, unfortunately, or fortunately. I don't know. It's, not, it's definitely not my preferred instrument. What made you get into uh, music in the first place, Jack? Oh, look, I come, I come from a fairly musical family, my mother's uh, quite musical. She was into it. She has a great taste in, you know, has great taste in music. Um, but I just, I think I was just, I was just exposed to it early. I loved it. It really, I took a shine to it. And as I delve into that question, I think it probably saved my life on a number of occasions because, um, because when I was, when I started, I was quite serious about it. So all the silly things that I did were kind of, a bit more measured because I was older. You know, I think I probably could have done 
done much more, many more, you know. I could have made much worse decisions when I was younger if I didn't have music, especially in the environment that I ended up in. So, uh, look, it probably, um, yeah, it, 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 it served me well. But really, I just, I just have an absolute love for it. I fucking love music. I love it. I get up every day. I do whatever I can to try and create something, whether it's for somebody else or, or for myself. And it really keeps me kind of focused. So, look, I think I think it was just a, and it was a, I think a real escape too. I just lo- I just love the the experience of music. I just really I don't find that I can get that that feeling from many other things okay. that are legal anyway. Yeah, Hand Valen. That was yeah. was that the first two. You're in a, a Van Halen tribute band, and at one stage I read you were in at the age of fourteen. You were in five different bands. Yeah, so when I was yeah, so when I was growing up, I was studying music. Look, I was a bit of a loner at school. I didn't have many friends. I didn't really. I wasn't the sort of. Uh, I was, you know, I was probably a bit of a nerd. So I didn't really. Um, all I had was music, and uh, even look, even some of my teachers gave me shit for, for it because they they, I don't know. Look, it was just a it was just a weird time for me. So yeah, so I basically. Like immersed myself in music. I was in like a big band, <laughs> like a you know a reception band. Oh god! Um, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> but you know, I, I guess I used to play at this. I used to play at this restaurant called the Gala Restaurant in Mowy, <laughs> and you know the first set was like Foxtrots and you know Pride of Erin, and you know the second set was was like you know. I guess kind of jazz standards in the third set, you know, we, you know, started with like, I'm so excited. So that, I guess as a 14 year old, that was a kind of good musical foundation to have. And I, and I always found myself in bands with guys that were all a lot, lot older than me. So when I was 14, I watched, I saw Virgil Donati playing on a Don Burroughs collection uh, show with Linda, this chick, Linda Cable. And I was like, I looked at the TV and I pointed at it. I said, I'm going to play in the band with that guy one day. Uh-huh. And so weird. It's so weird that like it was just fortuitous, I guess, how how it all kind of. I mean, you initially asked me to be in that band as a singer, and I was like, "Dude, there's no chance I can sing. I'm not a singer." I said, "But I'd love to. Do you have a guitar player? I'd love to play guitar in that band. That would be fun." And he goes, "Oh, look, I've kind of got a guitar player, uh, but in but Virgil in his his he has a particular penchant for." nurturing young promising uh, musicians and he's always done that he's always kind of plucked people out of obscurity and really you know and, and just worked them fucking hard like and and of course we all did that so happily because of the huge contribution that it, you know he could make so for me to play in a band with Virgil as a guitar player was, that was really really what I wanted to do so I auditioned and I got the gig playing guitar. I, I never ever wanted to be a singer. Like I just, it's, it's only in the last maybe 15 years that I've really started enjoying the experience of singing. It hasn't been just fucking terrifying and something that, uh, you know, for so long I didn't enjoy it because I was just scared all the time. And I felt this pressure. I was always being compared to such great singers. I was like, it was a, it was a, a compliment, but it was also like the worst thing in the world because yeah. I just didn't want to, like, I've got to be that great. Piss off. I'm just trying to have some fun here. <laughs> killing me. Destroying my happiness. <laughs> I like so it now, did though. You learn, did you learn to sing or did you just teach yourself? No, I just I just used to listen to people, which is, I think, 
I think that was probably why I had I had a few singing lessons because early in my career I blew my voice out because I just thought I thought singing was just about going hard, like just singing hard all the yeah. time. Uh, so I had a few singing lessons, but no real formal training uh, of any of any. Um, I remember Greggy Hines. Do you, know, do you guys know Greggy Hines? He's, yeah, he used to sing in a band called Network Network Horns oh. in the city back back in the eighties. He used to play that. at the Grain Store on Thursday nights. Yeah, he uh, when I first joined the Suns, he's a lovely fella. He sent me like a cassette with a bunch of vocal sort of exercises on it, and I used to do them religiously. It wasn't it wasn't uh, it weren't many on there, but but I think it kind of kind of really saved me. Uh, like you know, during that time, it was a beautiful thing for him to do. <laughs> Back in the days when we had cassettes. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, Southern Suns was a huge success. How did that all start? That How did that sort of come together? Yeah, so I was playing in that Van Halen cover band with, I don't know, how long do we have here? I mean, how, how bored do you guys want to get? Oh, no, like, we're up for it, Jack. Go for it. <laughs> okay, so when I was like, I guess 13, I was about 13 or 14, I used to take, I, used to, I grew up in Terrellgan in Gippsland. So I used to take the train on Saturday morning. I'd get like the 6.40 a.m. train and I'd come to Melbourne and I'd hang out in all the music stores. I'd hang out at a place called, you know, like Brashes and Allen. There was a place called Davis Music or Russell Street. I think. And I used to just go and hang out in these, these stores. It, it actually makes me nervous when I think about it now. I think there was no mobile phone. There was no internet. There was no nothing. Like I'd just get on the train and I was a kid. Like I was a little you know, I was a young kid from, from the country, but I used to come and hang out in these music stores and I used to love like just being around all these instruments. And anyway, I, that's where I first met Scott Kingman and I met oh, a guy yeah. named Jeff. Yeah. And for those people out there who know a band called Horsehead, you'd be very familiar with him. He also plays in the Jets. But um, anyway, that's where I, I, I first met him and I first met a guy named Jeff Wright. And Jeff just took me under his wing. He just kind of, I used to, I used to come up on weekends and spend weekends with him and his missus. And he'd take me to these like jam sessions with cats like Bones and all these great musos. And eventually, like when I was 14, he basically gave me the number of this guy. And he goes, listen, there's a band called The Cutters. They're looking for a guitar player. And I'm, you know, I'm, I was just a kid. But of course, I called. And my mum took me to Melbourne and I auditioned for this guy named Peter Hoyland. And anyway, I basically got a call back a couple of weeks later saying that I didn't didn't get the gig and I was fucking devastated. I was crushed. I was just 14. I wasn't even allowed to get into any of the venues that they'd be playing. <laughs> like even if I, I don't know, it was fucking stupid. Anyway, as it turned out, Virgil was in the covers and the guy that got the the job in that band was Reggie, Reggie Bowman, who he and I are still like absolute best mates. The funny thing was, was that then I went to America. I studied guitar there for, for a little while. I had, had a really great sort of six month period in LA and, and on the East coast. And then I came back to Australia and I got a gig in a band called survival. Brian, surely you know half the guys been in that band. Maz, Dale Ryder, like everyone everyone went through that band. A guy named Andrew Rigetti used to run that band, um, who's still a mate of mine 
anyway, I'm trying to trying to get to the to how I got in the sons, but this is all sort of the, the, the kind of convoluted story of how things just kind of fall into place. That was when I was about sixteen. I got that gig playing in this cover band, and then just kind of moved from cover band to cover band. And Virgil called me and asked me if I wanted to be in this Van Halen cover band, which I told you about before. And I ended up getting that gig as a guitar player. Our singer was sick at Soundcheck one day. It's such a cliche, but it's exactly what happened. Um, oh, no, sorry. So in between that, the band that was the Cutters became The State. And, of course, because I was a huge Virgil fan, you know, I would I would follow that band. And I was like, because I didn't get the gig, I was determined that I was going to you know, seek my revenge somehow by playing with them again. Um, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I thought that would be the best revenge, end up being in a band with them. So anyway, our singer's sick. I sing a couple of songs at Soundcheck, and Verge goes, come out to the car and have a listen. He had a cassette as well. <laughs> I get everyone had cassettes. Uh-huh. So I was in the car, he's playing me a tape of this band, The State, and I'm like, I know who this band is. I auditioned for this band two years ago or three years ago, whatever it was. Um Anyway, I went into the studio, I recorded about five songs and pretty much the rest is history. And I, and the only reason I became the singer in that band was because I would have done anything to play in another band with Virgil. Yeah. I just would have, I just, so it was very, it was all very organic and natural and it was just funny how it all, how it all kind of came to pass. And you know what, that changed, that changed the trajectory of my life. And, and it's funny because for a long time I didn't, I, I, I didn't play a lot of those songs um, I don't even I don't even really know why, but for a long time I didn't, and I definitely didn't go out and, and put like bands together and play them. And it's such it's been such a an extraordinary last sort of three years since I came back from New York, and since I started playing those songs again, and since the sun we had a sons reunion sort of tour of two thousand end of two thousand nineteen, which was something that I never ever thought that I'd do again, and it was just such an amazing experience. And Brian, I mean you you know what. You just—I think you just forget, like that you have had that you had a history with all these people, and of course, for twenty years or so, a lot of those people weren't going out because guess what? They were having kids, they were working, you know, their their life, they were getting kind of set up or settled or whatever they whatever they were doing, and all all of a sudden, they're coming out again. I mean, they've probably been doing that for the last 10 years, but for me, it's only been a little bit of last. Well, it started in 2019, then it ended in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, I don't mean to sound cynical about that. It just, it was a, it was actually, it's been quite a beautiful experience, actually, um, being able to share that music with the people who really made it possible for us to have a pretty extraordinary life over that time. And, and since then, it's, it's been a real journey. I've been an adventure, that's for sure. So, I mean, you've obviously re-embraced those songs. Do you appreciate, well, you know, the impact those songs had on people? I do. I, I really I, do, I really do. And, it, and it's a – pers- a, per- a person came up to me, it's probably about 2014. I was doing an acoustic gig. And they asked me if I was going to play Hold Me In Your Arms. This woman came up to me and I said, ah, I probably not going to play that tonight. Anyway, she looked devastated. It's a really heavy story, but she told me the story about her child and losing her child and how that song was the song that was on in the hospital when she went in to collect her deceased child's belongings. Uh. And I fucking lost it like at myself 
because I thought, yeah, you're so cool, man. You're so cool. You don't play that song. Yeah, well, you're so cool. You know, you don't want to play that song for whatever reason. You got your issues. You got your bloody bullshit that's going on for you. And yeah, you don't want to play that song because whatever. You know, it was just such a ridiculous thing. And I, I, I just felt so bad about myself. Um, because I thought I'm a fan of music. I should know better. Who am I, who am I to not share this music with people? Jesus, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's because of them that I actually get to go out and do gigs. Like it was just such an awakening for me. And it, it, it was a really, it was a real big deal. Yeah. And I start my show with, with, hold me in arms every time I play now, unless it's a full band gig, but every acoustic show I do, that's the first song I play because I just think, you know, that song changed my life and, and it's taken me, I guess my whole life to realize that it changed other people's lives too. Cause I never really thought that I'd ever be that, ever do anything that significant with, and I just got lucky. It's not like I did anything like special. I just sang that song and I got lucky, but it was one of the greatest things, the greatest gifts that ever, you know, that, that I've ever had in my life. So um, I'm extremely grateful for it, and I think I can appreciate it now. As you know, as you get older and yeah. you become more self-aware and stuff, you kind of start getting shit. Yeah. Hopefully, you do. If you don't, you just remain an idiot. <laughs> it's the morning sunlight moves gently on our bed. Sounds of distant traffic float into my head. I slowly open. Words won't be enough. But what is left? Unspoken, but softly in your touch. So hold me in your arms. Hold me in your arms. So. How was it working with Farnham? Oh, it was the greatest. It was the greatest and the worst all in one because cause I just, you know, I look up to John. I still I just still think he's one of the greatest. He's one of the greatest ever. Like, and so to be on stage with that guy was just phenomenal. And to be able to experience the, his greatness, he is, he is just... You know, look, you know, whether you like his jokes, whether you like whatever, it doesn't matter. When that guy gets a microphone and opens yeah. his mouth and sings, it's just, I mean, I don't, it's a fucking religious experience, man, for people that appreciate a great singer. Like, it just is. It's just, yeah. there are few people in this world that can even touch the heights that that guy, you know, that can even, even see them. Like, the guy is just, there's him. And then there's pretty much just everyone else kind of flailing underneath him. As far as, you know, singers go. And he's, 
he's such an. I remember before one show I played him. I was getting right into. I was deep diving into um, into Jeff Buckley, and I had this CD, this CD live at Chennai that he did in this little cafe in New York. And there's this incredible, this incredible thing that Jeff sings in the middle of. Um, He's doing this a version of this Dan Morrison song, The Way Young Lovers Do, and in the middle of it he goes, and he just sings this ridiculous, this, this ad-libs, this, this ridiculous, this line. I remember playing it to John. He goes, what are you listening to? I have my headphones on. He goes, what are you listening to? I go, oh, I'll check this out. I played him that that particular part of the song, and he goes, play it, he goes, play it, play it again, mate. Play it, play it, put it on again. I played it again, <laughs> and he goes, just play one more time, you know. So I played it one more time, and he just nodded his head. He goes, "Oh yeah, he's bloody crazy, isn't he?" I was like, "Yeah, he's great." In the middle of the time has come, one of John's songs that night, he came up, he stood next to me, and he fucking sang that exact lick. He just just instantly accessed it. He put it in his body. He listened to it. Like I had no idea at the time. That, that was what he was doing. I don't even know if he knew that was what he was doing. But wow. he just has an, an, an unbelievably innate sense for music. And he has this instrument that pretty much he can do anything with. And that was such a – I really went to school that night. That was like – because, you know, John doesn't – he doesn't walk around like, oh, I'm a singer, oh, I'm a singer. He's always cracking jokes and being kind of – but you know the guy's a serious contender. <laughs> he's, he's, and I think that's his secret weapon. His secret weapon is his just these cracking jokes and being uh, da, 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 and don't take me seriously. Mm. But I tell you what, when that guy opens his mouth, look out because the heavens just open up. Like I know, I'm, I know, I'm kind of, you know, it just sounds like I'm like worshiping the guy. But I just, I have such high admiration for that kind of level of skill because yeah. it takes so. You, you, nobody wakes up and can do that. Like, you just can't. You know, you, you can have all the ability in the world, but you, you can't just wake up and do that. It's just, uh, you've got to, you've got to put the time in and he's clearly done that. So, so working with John was, um, was a, was just an incredible experience. And as a 18 year old, 19 year old, when I started playing with him, it's just, I mean, it pretty much ruined me for the rest of my life. Like it was, <laughs> that's, how do you start? Like you start there, where do you go? It's um, yeah. but I'm incredibly grateful. It's funny we we went and did a reunion Southern Thumbs tour with John, and I didn't see him the whole time we were on the tour. It was ridiculous. Oh wow! Because we were on at like two in the afternoon, and he was on it. You know, whatever. I saw him perform, but I, we never ran into each other. <laughs> it was hilarious. I was like, oh wow! But um, no. anyway, I, I I still think he's he's one of the greatest. Now, I heard Burn For You was one of your songs and then John came in and rewrote the words. Is that right? What happened was that song was a song that Phil had um, and he was in the writing session with John and Ross Fraser for the Chain Reaction record. They were deep in that process. So, you know, Hold Me In Your Arms came very late in the process of our record. Um, right. And, 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 you know, Phil was, you know, he's, he's, just, he's so masterful at writing those kinds of, those heartfelt sort of ballads. And 
And I think I, I think that song was always a double-edged sword to him because I think he knew when he took it to John that it was going to be a smash. Like, right. I mean, I shouldn't say I shouldn't say it is so, so conceited, but you know, look, you know when you've written a song and it's a killer. Like, you know when you've when you've. It's not that you know it's going. No one can predict whether a song's going to be successful or not. However. You know if it's got something in it that's, that's special, you know, that, that connects with people, I think, you know, because everyone, yeah. everyone you kind of share a little bit of it with goes, ah, that's a good <laughs> one, isn't it? Yeah, right. You know, like whether these days it's a completely different experience. But but, like, but what happened was I think he, he took that to the sessions and the minute he offered it up, there was no way he was getting it back. If you know what I mean. Right. like, and who, um, So I always, felt that, I always felt that Phil was, well, there was always this part of him inside that was kind of torn thinking, God, that would have been a great song for us. But look, I mean, God, <laughs> that's, that song is, um, I mean, it's, it's so funny how many people at times think that I sang that song. I mean, I, I thought that there were similarities between John and my voice, but I never thought it was like, even though I, did that degeneration thing when I was 16 and took the piss or whatever. I never really thought that I sounded, I mean, I never thought I was that good that I'd ever be compared to someone like John, but I never thought we sounded like identical, but uh, clearly a lot of people, um, you know, there were, there were a lot of common threads between John and I as well. You know, that's the Phil, our songwriter was writing songs with, with, um, with John for that record. So a lot of things converged, but, but that's kind of how that song, Came to um, came to pass and ended up in John's in John's lap. Hey, yeah. Jack, t- tell us about uh, "Are You Okay," the uh, the new single that you've that you've the new song you've done. Yeah, so uh, a mate of mine, Phil Tursio, a beautiful keyboard player, lovely fellow, uh, Reggie Bowman, and I. Without diluting it, the last couple of years for a lot of people have been pretty much a monsoon of absolute shit. Like it's just been hard. It's been it's been bring you up, smash it down, like thrown around we've lost heaps of mates during this time fucking tragic like it's actually it's actually been a really a real challenging time for a lot of people and instead of getting cranky about it which is my default setting these days I think as I get older I get angrier I just wanted to do something that I felt like was was putting something kind of good back into the ether and it was, look, it was a song that had been kicking, an idea that had been kicking around. I was actually chatting with my mum one night. She'd had a few shandies and she was like, you should do an Are You Okay song. Like, it would be great. And, and I, of course, I completely dismissed it, even though it, it had been under consideration. I mean, not because it was my mum, but I was just like, oh, God, oh, no, I'm getting told what to do. No one tells me what to do. Not even me. Mm-hmm. Like, in the cold light of day, I was like, "That's a great idea, and and it's an opportunity to 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 try and try and make some kind of positive contribution during during a time when people are doing it tough." So there was, "Are You Okay?" Day was coming up. I said to my manager, I said to DD, "Look, mate, let's get in touch with these guys and let's just offer offer it to them. Let's just just give it to them." So they declined, which is fine with me. I love the song. We put it out, and um. And we continue to push it in the hope that it gives somebody something because, look, we live in Australia. Australia's full of a lot of guys, a lot of guys that don't reach out, don't, that are too tough for that. 
We don't have any fucking problems. I'm okay. Yep, I'm doing fine, mate. We're traveling great. And the reality is, is that a lot of us aren't. Um, and, uh, and you know, it was a real, it's been real sobering experience, these lockdowns for me in, in the sense that I've lost some mates that, that I often ask myself if I could have contributed more. We always ask ourselves that question. And the reality is, is if someone, you know, you know, the thing about taking your life is that statistically guys are really good at it. Yeah. They're way, they're way better at it than chicks. Uh, This is nothing against the ladies. I love the ladies, but. Guys are way more successful at, at, at that. So this isn't just about guys. I'm just saying that, that yeah. as men, we, we don't check in on our mates because we, everyone assumes that everyone's doing okay. And God forbid if we checked in on our mate and our mate asked us how we were doing and we're not tracking well. Like, you know, there's all that stuff that's going on all, all the time. It's that male alpha, you know, thing. That's, so there's no shame in asking for help and calling out and there's no shame in checking in on your mate. So it was just a sobering, you know, experience. So. It's tough out there, man, and we just want to bring something good into people's lives. And um, music is a is a thing that can do that. But that's what we did. We wrote a song, and and we've offered it up to the world. Yeah, it came out for a week, and people did something, and it disappeared. But whatever, I'm kidding. Yeah, I've got. I've got to ask you: Did your mum like the song? She loves it. She loves the song, mate. She no idea. She's yeah. bloody stoked. She was absolutely stoked. I she get a writing credit. <laughs> she didn't get a writing credit. Of course not. How would it been? How would it have been if she says, Jack, go and write a song called Oh Okay, you go away and write it, and then you come back and play it and she goes, Oh, I don't like that at all. It's nah, a pile of nah. shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Days spinning just a little till I figure out a reason to stay. I'm doing fine, at least for today. I can't pull focus if you're telling me you're pulling away. Are you okay? Are you okay? Live your life with a window down Celebrate the things of today Are you okay? Are you okay? Picks you up and you down so get back up and turn around no you know it's never too late are you okay it's a crime if you waste a new day life's not a sentence take my hand please don't push it It's a 
There's, uh, there's Jack's song that he put together uh, called Are You OK? The Are You OK people didn't want it, but we've got it, which we're happy to get it out there. It's on uh, it's on all the platforms that you want to uh, participate in and the ones probably even that you don't want to participate in. Oh, the Are You OK people probably should ask them, are you thinking correctly? Yeah, exactly. It's a great song. It was wonderful. Yeah, it is a good know. song. So and thanks you know, to Jack and, uh, and keep your eyes open for uh, gigs that he's doing around the place too because he will be uh, out and about again very shortly uh, doing doing gigs, doing, uh, you know, live performances acoustically and with, my and with friend, the band. My friend went and saw him uh, somewhere recently and it was just an acoustic show but it was wonderful, she reckons. He's just such a great singer and, um, you know, great guitarist too, you know. So but um, so he's out and about. I don't know what he's doing next week, but um, the show he did with my friend saw said it was just fantastic. Beautiful. All right, let's get to our next Not guest. Not like me to be so nice, but um, the, I can only, <laughs> you know, I'd rather say it was a mess and he broke all his strings and then, he, you know, started getting drunk and wanting to fight everybody, but... <laughs> That's not what happened. It was a really good show. So he's sort well of, done, Jack. He strikes me as a bloke who's been through that pop star experience and come out the other end of it and sort of looks back on it uh, and goes, yeah, that was a lot of fun, but I'm now actually a bit of a different person now. I, I actually mm. understand what's inside my own skin a bit more than he did before. Well, I've been really impressed with um, when we spoke to Swanee and, you know, he sort of, it's not about the money anymore, but he's just about helping people and he goes into palliative care and plays yep. songs for people and um, helps people get off the alcohol. And, um, yeah, it's amazing the little things that we learn along the way about people and um, it's really nice when you see goodness. Yep, absolutely. Mm. Well, we've got plenty mm. of goodness packed into this bloke. Uh, goodness gracious me, did he have one of the biggest hit records of the 70s or what with a thing called Don't Fall In Love? And we're going to talk about yeah. how that got put together and a few other little bits and pieces with the very, very engaging Billy Miller. No right. Well, let's get it started, Billy. The big question I think that everybody wants to know is how do you think St Kilda will go this year? <laughs> <laughs> the radar, brother. My son found a, Eddie found a photo of Max King taking a big mark last week and fair dinkum, it is exactly the same as the John Coleman mark. Wow. You know, that, I think we'll be good, Brian. 
I've sort of pictured of maybe sneak into the eight this year. I reckon you nearly got there last year. And I think Ratton's a good coach. Yeah, coach. He's a good bloke. Yeah. So the St Kilda thing is is good. loomed largely in your life, hasn't it? Is is sort of a prerequisite to a lot of the things you've done in your life have been based around your devotion to the St Kilda Football Club. Yeah, exactly. So, like, I started going in 1956 with me dad to the Junction Oval. We lived just up the road, Savaloy for lunch and then walked down. And, uh, yeah, I've just been a fanatic all the way through. When I when we got a ferrets demo tape, we were called the Rocking Ferrets then. We were in Sydney playing in the Northern Beaches. We chopped out the rocking bit, but... Um, I went and saw Molly with it for three reasons. How did you See know if you Molly? Can name him, Brian. Because um, he barracked for St Kilda. He's a Beatle fan. One. He's a Beatle yeah. fan. And. Two. And he's a producer. And he produced I Am the Real Thing. Oh, that great. That's the three. Yeah, okay. So what happened? Yeah. So, anyhow, um, I took the demo tape down to the ABC at Rip and Lee and halfway through the second song he was on the phone to Gadinsky saying we have to sign this mob up. It's wow. the next Beatles. <laughs> the next Beatles. Now, now that song wasn't Don't Fall and, in Love, uh, was it, that he that he yeah. was telling Gadinsky about it was a different song, wasn't it? Yeah, Don't Fall in Love hadn't been even written then. It was a song called Just Like the Stars, which is on the Ferret's record, and a friend of his had been killed in a motorbike accident that week and it reminded him of him and he just started crying and and that was it. Yeah, in Sydney we won a competition on 2JJ, it was called then, mm-hmm. called Fresh Cream. And uh, you sent your, your songs in and the winner got eight hours in a really good studio to do a demo and we won it. So that was the demo I used to uh, play to Molly. So yeah. Molly's got on the phone to Gadinsky and said, you've got to sign these guys. And what happens next? So Gadinsky signs you? Well, what happened then was Molly informed me that he is going to be the record producer and the manager as well and uh, just took over everything. And... Uh, so it took us 18 months to record the record, the album. He was going over to interview Madonna and Jacko and whenever he went overseas for Countdown, we had to stop. Right. But that didn't stop us because Tony Cohen, our engineer, had a key and every night at like midnight we'd sneak in when everybody went home and just record all night. It's <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> Got in a big trouble one night when uh, Little River Band were recording their big record in Studio 3 at Metropolis. We just went in there and um, changed all the, <laughs> the, the dials on the desk. And, <laughs> Ouch. Oh, boy, yeah. Next day we got the call. What do you think you're doing? These guys have been setting up for a month. <laughs> that was us. <laughs> so... Molly is a producer. Can you tell us about that? Brilliant producer. Yeah? He's the best producer I've ever seen. He'd walk into a session and go, right, turn everything off except for the drums. Right. Now, 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 put them out of that speaker. Now bring in the 
bass and um, put a bit more treble on the bass. Bring in that acoustic guitar now and we need maracas here. He just build it over wow. an hour or so and all of a sudden there's this monstrous track coming out of the speakers that wasn't there before. He's a genius. Best wow. ear for music. For someone who isn't a musician, ridiculous. Yeah. That was back in the days of no automation on desks. So we had drag queens, we had mums, so many hands on the desk. Uh, yeah. You know, like when this chorus comes around, Jono, I want you to turn, pan it to the left and then bring it back. So there were many people with many jobs with their hands on the desk, which would horrify most producers, engineers. They would hate that sort of thing, but, geez, it worked for us. I think Russell Morris told us pretty much the same yeah. thing with uh, the real thing, that, you know, there's about five people there, they're, yeah, turn that up now, now, yeah, and all of that. I remember yeah. actually doing it with, with X-Men yeah. stuff occasionally before anim- automation. Yeah, it was, um, it was a bit hit yeah. and miss. Wasn't Don't Fall In Love a quick recording? That was done pretty quick in comparison to everything else on the album, wasn't it? Yeah, we, we already had the A side. It was called Lies and uh, we needed a B side. And we're at a party somewhere. Uh, KD and the drummer came up with Don't Fall In Love and we recorded it the next day because they said we need to be side quick. Recorded it in four hours. Molly got back from America while we were just doing the mix and he said, what's this? And we're going, it's just the B-side. It's just the song we wrote last night. And he's going, no, 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 this is a hit. We're going, you're joking, aren't you? And uh, he just took over the mix and we need more maracas here. And <laughs> so it was still only a one-hour mix with him. But, yeah, off it went. Amazing. You've had um, a bit of success of late fighting with Paul Kelly, Bill. Yes. Tell us oh, how that I, came uh, about because that's a great story about the cricket and um, the firewood and candlesticks yes. and the rock. So we watch a lot of test cricket. We have for about 10 years. Only test cricket, not one-day shit. We were sitting at his place about, oh, it must be six or seven years ago now, and um, it was Australia versus South Africa, and it's over there, so it's like 11 or 12 at night, and it started raining, and we just jumped on the guitars, and there was, on this first night that we songs, we wrote a song called Don't Let a Good Thing Go, which is on the Merry Souls session, sung by Dan Sultan. And that went well. But then a few, you know, during the next year we started writing during a rain break again. And this time a friend of his was there and he'd just broken up with his girlfriend and he's trying to work out a way to get back to her. And he's saying, oh, did everything, guys. I, I bought the firewood and the, had the, lit the candles and I just jumped on the guitar, or Paul, I can't remember which one, hit an A minor, far wooden candles, and bang, off we went. And that was written in about an hour. And <laughs> we wrote two others that night. All three are on the Life is Fine album. There's one called Rising Moon and another called Rock Out on the Sea. Like the guy said, oh, I don't know, I feel like a rock out on the sea. Bang. Dang, another one. There's a rock out on the sea, you know, we just whipped <laughs> them down. Because we're jammers, me and Paul. He never got back with that girl. I was going <laughs> to ask about that. But, um, so I've got four songs with Paul on that album, which is fucking great. Yeah. Really good. 
the latest song we've written is about our two dogs, which are sisters. Queenie and Joni, they like to go to the park. Chicka chicka booty. It's a fucking hit, mate. <laughs> uh, it's a hit. Oh, it's great. The children play their time away And I'm so grateful that they and me are here today They make me laugh, <laughs> they make me play And take me back to yesterday Well, I want to ask you, Billy, is, is the Royal Oak Hotel in North Sydney been on the phone trying to get you back for a Friday night residency to belt out a bit of green, green grass of home? Brilliant, Kev. Thanks, mate. Uh, I can't believe they, they haven't recontacted me. Yeah, so we were starving then. We drove up to Sydney. It was 1972. It was the week before I got into Jesus Christ Superstar 
and we were living in a tent in the back of some guy's backyard. This is me, my missus and my mate and a couple of other people. Anyhow, um, I saw this sign outside that pub, $30 first prize Friday night talent quest. So I went down there and did the green, green grass of home and won. 30 bucks was a lot of money in 1972. Mm. And the next week I went down and tried it again and they said, mate, you can only win it once. It's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> you did You did Elvis the second week, didn't you? That uh, was your song of choice? Yeah, you've lost that loving feeling. Oh, that was when you did the New Faces. Week, they, yeah, New Faces, gee. That was, uh, oh, I just put my name down for it. Frank Wilson was the host. Oh, yeah. And uh, the sister of the singer, Helen Reddy, what's her sister? Di, Tony Lamont. Yeah. Yeah. Tony Lamont, she was a, a, a judge. And she said to me, your face is your fortune, mm. which I thought. She wanted to pants you. She <laughs> doesn't say much for my voice. <laughs> Anyhow, like I'm doing, you've lost that love and feeling brilliantly. And he's playing the spoons. He's in his 80s. But it was sort of good to share it with him. So we tied on right. 74 points each. And then I went home and we all dropped a trip and watched it back. <laughs> <laughs> I was singing it, <laughs> and then yeah. and then then you then you went basically went in and did Jesus Christ Superstar for what a couple of years? Yeah, yeah. So I was in the chorus when I joined and became the understudy to Trevor White. So I did Jesus mm. about fifteen times. I was also understudy to Stevie Wright. You know what a gun he was. The sing-alongs in that dressing room were incredible. You got John English, Stevie Wright, John Paul Young, and me, I suppose, and, and others. The orchestra was the band part of the orchestra was made up of ex-members of Tully, uh, who were a sort of esoteric fusion rock group. They were brilliant. And KD Firth, Ken Firth, was the bass player. He was the bass player in Tully and superstar, and we hit it off. We're both Beatles nuts, and we just used to have jams every night after the show just playing the Beatles catalogue from go to work, and things took off from there, and next minute we had the rocking ferrets together. took a long time for the ferrets as such to do a gig. What are your memories of when you started playing as the ferrets and you had a number one song in the country and all that stuff? We were lucky that... um, We'd all played lots of gigs before that, but, yeah, for the year and a half it took to make the Ferrets record, we didn't do any gigs. When Don't Fall In Love came out and went to number one, like, pretty quick on Countdown, we did a couple of snow gigs and next minute we were on the um, Blondie tour. Oh, wow. Which was incredible. Yeah, so we all went on the bus. Both my sisters were in the band by that stage. It's funny when you look at Don't Fall In Love, I'm playing the guitar solo, but really it was Dave Springfield who played that solo, but he left the band because my sisters were joining. He wasn't going to play in a band with girls in it. Yeah. And then he left. Yeah. Two weeks later it went to number one and I've done the film clip with me miming his guitar solo and him begging to rejoin the band, and we said, sure, of course you can, you know. So we had three guitarists for a little while there, 
after Dave came back. We got in a lot of trouble on the road. No manager could control us. Uh, Kodinsky tried to get this sort of sergeant major guy, Billy McCartney, to be our tour manager, but we ran rings around him pretty quick. We weren't mature enough to handle all that shit. <laughs> um, you know, we really hit the piss and carried on like dickheads. But, uh, yeah, we still managed to play pretty well, I think. You had a pretty a few um, crazy nights with Molly on the piss back in your drinking days, didn't you? Yeah, we became best mates and go to the footy and, you know, listen to Beatles and shit like that. But one night, me and Molly, two of the Maori drag queen ladies uh, dressed Molly and I up like showgirls, you know, with uh, makeup and big wigs and beautiful dresses and uh, look quite good, actually. And we <laughs> went down to this parlour. And uh, in Mora, in Moray Street, South Melbourne, and we went in and we pretended to be girls, right, <laughs> just for fun. So we're sitting in there and this young guy comes in, they're sort of blokes and they sort of pick who they want to be with. And this young guy comes in, about 19, looked like a plumber or something, he came in and he looked at Molly and said, oh, you know, I'll take her because he looked pretty good and you had no way of picking it was him. And Molly gets up and off they go to go to the bedroom and his bloody wig fell off and the guy just realised straight away, he said, you're Molly Meldrum, what the fuck's going on here? He just took off. That was an amazing night. Yeah. So that'll be in my book. I'm writing memoirs. Oh, good. Uh, you're in it there, Brian, don't you worry. But overall, he's just a beauty, Molly. Everybody knows that. Yeah. It was weird every Monday morning, quite often I'd be, you know, we'd have an all-nighter and this is in Richmond. And the record company people used to come every Monday morning, you probably remember that, Kev, yeah. uh, to Molly to present him with their latest records, you know, EMI, WEA, whatever they are. And they're all basically crawling or trying to become friends with Molly so that they'd get on Countdown. That was the whole thing. Yeah, so Monday morning was like a, a sort of cattle call of all the record company guys trying to get on to Countdown and 3XY. Were you there then, Kev? Yeah, because what they do is they go to Molly's yeah. place first then they come to 3XY after and say, Molly's going to put this on Countdown on Sunday. And you go, well, we're going to have to play it. There you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's how it works. So, yep. And Michael, you know, Michael and Molly's sort of best friends from then. Michael was fantastic. Man. This is Gadinsky. Like, he didn't blink when Molly said, I want the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra on four of the Ferret songs <laughs> because I wrote with uh, orchestrations. You know, I remember seeing Molly next to, I think it was Gary Ashley from Mushroom, just write all the string players in a line and he's just writing out checks and giving it to them. <laughs> you know, it's pretty good for a local record, probably unheard of then. I've got to tell you how we started. Like Tony Cohen, who we all know so well, was was the engineer on Supernauts. I like it both ways. Yes. And he was the dubbing boy, but Molly saw a talent in Tony and got him to engineer 
the Supernaut single, which was sort of when we were starting, so we'd go in between studios. And So he asked me one day, uh, Tony, he said, come and listen to this. And he's got I Like It Both Ways going. I like it both ways. Great song. And there was just Tony and I in the studio. He said, listen to this. And he soloed the drums into the left speaker and then the bass in the right speaker. And these were brothers, I think, these two guys. And it didn't sound like they were playing the same song. It sounded like they were in a different country. It was just horrifying. But then when he... Tony's such a great engineer. When he brought everything in, unmuted everything, and really made a big thing of the guitar, jack, 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 and and Gary's great vocals, like you listen to it now, it's a hit. Boy, it was a pretty rough band track. <laughs> <laughs> well, he went on to do um, a whole lot of stuff with uh, yeah. Dave, and I think he even did some stuff with uh, Horsehead, which is uh, Max Blake's men drummer's band. So, yeah, he became a yeah. bit of a superstar producer, Tony Cowan. Hey, you, you talk about your memoirs. Have you, you've obviously written them. Are you going to publish them ever? Oh, bloody oath. Good. Yeah, for sure. Like, geez, Kev, I've been writing them for – I've always been a writer down of things. It's They're up to 300,000 words. I'm going to have to chop a bit. But, yeah, they're fully detailed and, and I'm so glad I've done it. Throughout the whole time, I've always been a. I love writing short stories and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it'll definitely be. I thought. I don't know. When do you think I should do it? Is should I do it while I'm alive or? Depends. Yeah, are you gonna Are you gonna write about angry uh, ironing his jumpsuit or whatever it was that you caught him ironing when you're in the Buster Brown days? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The way I've done it, Kev, is um, I've got different folders and like there's a folder for Buster Brown. Before I sent the demo to uh, Molly, we played in Buster Brown for six months. Me, Dave and KD. So three of the four fits we played in Buster Brown, which was Angry's band. I don't know. You've heard of them, haven't you? Yeah. yeah. Funny. Anyhow, so we joined it and, you know, we had fun, but we went to Perth Premier Artists sent us to Perth because Buster Brown had just finished an album before we joined and they wanted to promote that. So we went over to Perth and everything collapsed while we were over there. But, like, one day I went into Angry's room and he's got the ironing board out and, he, you know, those jumpsuit, denim jumpsuits he used to wear? <laughs> he's ironing the denim jumpsuit. And I said, listen, Angry, what the fuck are you doing? You've got your tats. You're making everybody think you're a tough guy and here you are ironing like my grandmother. What's wrong with you? you know? <laughs> but he was, uh, the other thing he did was when we left to drive to Perth, there were five of us in a new Falcon. As we were leaving Melbourne, Angry is sitting in the back seat, dropped two mandrakes. Do you remember them? Like a mandrax is worth about eight Valium, I reckon. Wow. Anyhow, he just started dribbling all over us asleep <laughs> for the whole trip to Perth. Not really a team man, but uh, there you go. <laughs> uh. Angry and Dallas Royal, who they came back over and formed Rose Tattoo. All right, that's Billy Miller.
Uh, I love the story about him and Molly in the parlour in uh, in St Kilda. Gee whiz. Um, <laughs> Molly nearly made some extra money. <laughs> there was a revenue stream he hadn't worked on, uh, worked out during the countdown days, but never mind. Well, I think he's got a lot more stories like that, so we have to get him back. Yes, we're going to do a part two with Billy because uh, we did have some uh, some connection problems, so we actually had to cut it a, b- a bit short uh, in the recording process. So we're going to get him back and get him to tell uh, some of the uh, the other stories and uh, maybe even explore a little bit more about his uh, his connection with Paul Kelly and stuff too because that's that's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, it was it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Like, you know, while we were watching the cricket and then it started to <laughs> rain, so the guitars came out and we knocked out a couple of hit singles. <laughs> yeah, beauty. As you do when you're watching the cricket and the rain comes in. Brian. I want to watch, watch the cricket more often. Yeah. Uh, Brian. Hope it rains. Brian. What's the matter, mate? Don't silk it up on the show, mate. mate the, Come show's, on. the show's finished. It's over for another time. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks to our friends at Murcotts, one three hundred five 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 seven six 555 576 Go and jump on the website, give them a call, talk to them, uh, get yourself sorted uh, so you're a better driver because Brian and I don't want to run into you on the roads. No, no, I don't. And no. I want your kids to be a better driver too, so buy them a present of, of, a, of a gift voucher from Mercots. And how's, uh, how's the voice going now? You're starting to do a few more gigs and get, get out and about there? Yeah, yeah. Things are I, good? I, went to, I went to Tassie on, I played Hobart on Thursday and then played uh, Lonnie on Friday and then Franger on Frankston on Saturday. Hobie, and, Lonnie um, and Franger. Oh, you've had a – Yeah, had to- that was beautiful. And then um, – I went out in the boat again yesterday and uh, Ooh, I met Sir dum, both. Dum. Oh, wow. Wow, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow, you bastard. Yeah, and Lady Kath. I met them both. Oh, well, and yeah. Arlene, I do envy you. I would like to sit down and have a chat with you. My, uh, the late, great Dean Jones told me a lot about uh, Beefy and we actually interviewed him together at one stage and, um, yeah, I do like him. I do like him. I, I think he's he, he must be a nice man, I reckon. Well, you know, he put up with me, so that's that's. He's a saint. <laughs> um, didn't talk to him too much about cricket because he's probably sick of that. Yeah. But um, spoke to him quite a bit about soccer because he's the chairman of Durham Football Club, which I think is in. He played uh, for Scunthorpe or someone, didn't he? When he was, uh, I'm sure he played oh, to, he? like third division English soccer. I'm sure he played. I'm sure it was Scunthorpe. Wow. For some reason, that just sticks straight in my head. Um, yeah. Oh no, he's uh, he's he's uh, he loves a red wine and uh, and loves to tell a, yeah. a, a bit of an after dinner story too. Well, he was, you know, he was, you know, he's Lord Botham, and he was Lord Beefy. you know, very 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 friendly with all the peasants. So um, well done, Ian Botham. <laughs> uh, what a pleasure get, to meet him. Uh, did you get a photo with him? No, I didn't, didn't but, you? you know, you sort of go, oh, come on, don't dag the guy yeah, with the boat together. Yeah, and, it did. And, you know. It's his off time. The only thing I did ask him about was, you remember when he walked out, you know, Jerry Humphreys or something came out dressed as the Queen? Oh, yes, he, he and Graham Gooch packed the shits, didn't they? That was yeah, at, a, that was at they, a, a luncheon or something for Cricket Australia. Well, I think they had to play the next day and that one of the things was suggested that, they just didn't want to be there, so that was an excuse for them to leave. Yeah. But I asked him about that, and I'm not quite sure what the answer was, but I think it was no. <laughs> I was no. I was pissed off with this bloke dressed up, this man dressed up being the queen. No, not just disrespectful. Yeah, no, fair enough. Well, he's clearly he's a lord, and he's a, he wasn't then, but uh, he's part of the royal family now. 
Well, I suppose he is. But you're a, you're a, you're a, you've got a title. I'm Brian of Sealand. Did you tell Actually, him that? I might, have, I might have, no, I didn't. I might have to renew that though. It, um, I think it's going to expire in about a hey, year. So, you know uh, what? If you just said, if you just said, oh, by the way, uh, Lord Beefy, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, Lord Brian of Sealand, you would have gone over out of the boat again. I reckon. If, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> Look at my arm. Look at my arm. Oh, you got another, you got a band aid on there. Yeah, and my foot. I just cannot get on that boat without getting blood on me. But um, anyway, great day. Oh, goodness me. All right, well, until next time, stay off boats. Get on the All road. Right. You're good on the road. Murkots have made you good on the road, so stay on the road, Brian, not Absolutely. in the boats. And, I'm, and I'm even better on the PlayStation. Yeah, all <laughs> right. Until uh, next time, see you, Brian. See you, Kev. We're Jack. Stop it. I'm tired. It's a good night.